0: yeah um, that's uh, that's not an easy question to answer because ultimately the very first spark was um, photographing weddings was too stressful for me but <laughs> yeah
1: I can't think of any Than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket.
2: The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids. Welcome to Coats, My name is Amit Siddiqui. So today on the podcast we have Dr. Chris Kerrignan who studies how we produce sound and speech using our vocal track. It was a fascinating conversation because I learned some really cool shit about how our vocal track works and specifically how singers are able to manipulate those variables to create beautiful sound and, 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 and music. Um, Also, what I would like you guys to do is to like our Facebook page if you haven't done so already. Give us some feedback on that. And you could also give us some feedback on iTunes and any other podcasting app that you use. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you guys do too.
0: Um, You can get an accurate representation of the entire surface of the tongue, but only in two dimensions. Mm. Right. So that depends on the orientation of this probe that I have underneath my tongue. And currently, I have it oriented in the sagittal plane so that you can see the surface of the tongue. Yep, you can see the surface of the tongue from the back, which is on the left. So, if I say ka 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 ka, ka that's the back of my tongue, mm. and then the front of the tongue on the right. So, if I say ta 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 ta, <laughs> that's the front of the tongue. But what I'm missing is the fact that the tongue is a three dimensional structure. I don't get any of that information here.
2: Most of our, most of our listeners will be audio. Um, only a handful would probably see the video. but for That's the- a shame. Everyone should see it. A- it's fun. Why? <laughs> because they'll
0: be able to actually see how my tongue moves when I speak, which is the basis of my research. And uh, this isn't an ev- everyday thing, right? You don't ha- get to just see this walking down the street, people's tongues moving. So it's <laughs> no. it's, qu- it's quite a fun experience to see it for the first time. Exactly.
2: Um, so Chris is actually... Uh, got the ultrasound attached to his his
0: throat-ish. Uh, yeah, so underneath, at the bottom part of my tongue. So if you actually, if you feel with your finger right underneath by your jaw, you feel that muscle and you try to speak, yeah, yeah. see that is actually the bottom side of your tongue, it's ah. really large. So if you put the ultrasound down there, you can image even the top part of it.
2: Ah. Yeah, so we're recording that as well as the audio and the video. In the lab so if if you're just listening to the audio of this go check it out on youtube and facebook and wherever we put our stuff so uh cool um uh, thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast so i had chris as a supervisor for a unit in uh, my master's learning and processing human language and uh you were working i think it was articulatory differences in in speech and singing yep and uh at that time I was curious in uh, about how the vocal track works because uh, I had I have si- f- singer friends and I'm like, how do you guys do that? That's just like, you guys, like I don't know, like, it's just magical. I have the same, like, I have a vocal track, you have a vocal track, but with yours, you can create beautiful music. With mine, I just create nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was very happy to uh, do that project with you. And as I was telling you before... A couple of the programming stuff uh, was actually very useful for my thesis because uh, I used some of the figures, or some of the ways that, um, I should say, R is one of those programs that's really has great utility when you use it, if you know how to use it. Yeah. So I, And I, it's free. And it's free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is really <laughs> cool. And so Chris actually trained me on that and uh, it was very awesome, um, came help um, in handy for my thesis.
0: Glad to hear it.
2: Um, I like to start with the inspiration question. You know, I'm I'm always curious about what what was the initial spark that put you on this path.
0: Yeah. Um, that's uh, that's not an easy question to answer because ultimately the very first spark was um, photographing weddings was too stressful for me. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So. That's actually, uh, I went to college initially for photography. I was in art school, and um, I still do photography um, as a hobby, as an amateur photographer, but um, that first year of art school, I was an apprentice for a local photographer and helping with, uh, you know, some of his gigs, and then I tried to do some weddings on my own, which was, um, went well they were fine but to this day is the most stressful thing i've ever done in my life and i I, I couldn't handle it so i ran away screaming what's so stressful
2: about taking photos of the wedding
0: because it's you're taking photos of one of the most important days of, of two people's lives right and if anything goes wrong with those there's only one person to blame that's you that's you and Uh it was it was just too much (laughs) so I uh, yeah I I threw that down um didn't touch my camera for like two or three years yeah it stressed me out um but that is to say that um I had taken French in high school and I was trying to figure out okay well what do I do I just finished my freshman year um of university and I have no idea what I'm going to do I want to take French classes again because I enjoyed that. And um, a, uh, a friend who ended up being one of my roommates in college, uh, he was in French courses at the time. And I said, oh, can I just sit in, you know, go to class with you and sit in and see how the French is and see if, uh, if I'll be OK with that? And he said, yeah. And um, I think one of the courses he had after that in the day was a linguistics course because mm. he was double majoring in French and linguistics. And I was like, what in the world is that? I've never heard of linguistics. What is this? Mm. Um, so he told me about linguistics, which is the, simply put, the scientific study of language. And there are lots of different areas of that. And um, so I started taking some linguistics courses of my own. There were two linguistics courses I took. At the uh, the first semester I was in that, um, that college was... Um, introduction to linguistics and introduction to sociolinguistics mm. one of the worst professors i've ever had <laughs> but the reading material reading about linguistic study i wanted more of that and so i just t- you know continue taking more classes yeah.
2: and what what fascinated you with linguistics Be- because I, I i study i'm a bilingual um Dari was my mother tongue, and learning English, I learned English, but I was never fascinated as to how the English language was constructed. Mm. Um, and then only when I started learning Chinese was when I realized, oh, there's probably some value in actually deciphering how languages are put together. Yeah. So what was it for you? Why were you fascinated in with linguistics?
0: I think initially it wasn't even about linguistics and about language per se. It was trying to decipher some mysteries right and there are mysteries all over with linguistics that we you know that's what our job is is trying to figure out what's going on and there's so much going on in language because it's one of the things that really makes us stand apart as a species um, that uh, that's where the draw was for me is just trying to figure out what's going on Mm. um, in all different aspects Uh, I study uh, phonetics which is um, speech production now but in syntax so the order that you know words go together um how words are structured internally
2: in different languages it's just all really fascinating to me Mm. so so you start doing these linguistic classes and then what happened
0: um i graduated and i didn't want to stop so i continued on in grad school with linguistics and before I knew it, I had a PhD and I didn't want to stop. So <laughs> I continued working, um, doing linguistics. I did. I love it. I, I right. really love my work.
2: That's fascinating. So do you, when you, when you finished, was it a degree or, um, so once you finished that, you, you said you went into post-grad. Yeah. Was it like an honors or a masters in, in America?
0: Um, it's a little bit different in America and it depends on, um, what university you're in. So the, track that I did specifically was, so in undergrad, I double majored, uh, like my friend who I met in French and linguistics. Mm-hmm. And so then I went to grad school, uh, for French linguistics. It was a specific track in the French department. You yeah. could either do literature or linguistics. And this was university of Illinois. Um, and at the university of Illinois, their specific, uh, model was, It's a PhD track, so you do six-odd years of work that gets you your master's along the way to finishing the PhD. So It's it's one long haul.
2: So it's a master's and a PhD combined. Combined. Yep. Ah, And so what were you researching in your master's?
0: I was researching uh, what ended up being the same thing that I was researching then uh, later for my PhD and what I'm still looking at is uh, in French... And was looking at different dialects of French, there are differences in um, uh, what we call vowel nasality and uh, they are what we call contrastive. So whether there is air coming out of your nose or not can completely change the meaning of a word. So um, there's a difference between like uh, like peau which is skin and pont which is bridge. Right? Mm. So to a French person, they have no idea what they're doing, right? Uh, but what's really going on is that the, for pont, there's air coming out of the nose. But it also affects the, uh, the acoustic signal in a way that we don't really understand what's going on in the vocal tract other than um, air coming out of the nose. So what I looked at is studying the vocal tract along with the air coming out of the nose to see what is truly happening in the inside the head of a French speaker when they're producing these different sounds.
2: Right. Okay. Uh, and why is there... That's a very subtle difference. That must be really difficult. Like for me, like I could barely hear it, but uh, just one felt more nasally. Yep. Why is that? Is that important? Did one evolve from the other? Can you tell us a bit a bit? Yeah, more about So
0: um, there are a lot of different languages that have phonemic vowel nasality, uh, like French or Hindi or Portuguese. Um, and they produce the nasal vowels in different ways, but a, a common uh, evolution of vowel nasality is from when a nasal consonant is next to a vowel and you pronounce it very quickly in in regular speech, the timing of the lowering of uh, the velum, which allows air to come out of the nose, um, is not always precise because we're not robots. Mm. You know, it takes us time to do things, and it can sort of bleed over in a way into the vowel itself. So what you get is an overlap of of an oral vowel where there is no nasalization mm-hmm. and a nasal consonant like m or n", mm. where there is nasalization and then the overlap creates a nasal vowel or vowel nasality oh. on it. and the more that that happens the more speakers of a language throughout generations can start to contribute that to the vowel itself and start to produce it that way so Actually, English is undergoing a very similar sound change. In a lot of dialects, you get in, in my dialect, um, in uh, Pacific Northwest American English, you get a difference between uh, cat, c-a-t, and can't, c-a-n apostrophe t, but you don't pronounce the n, right? Cat, can't.
2: So, so all I hear is cat and can't, right? But, but are they? Are you saying that they? You guys. Those are synonymous in America? They're not synonymous.
0: They're different words. But where you pronounce a little bit of an N, in my dialect, it has evolved far enough that the N is no longer pronounced. And the only difference between those is cat has, uh, uh, so there are two consonants, the K, and then at the end, the T, and in the middle, the vowel A. Mm. And in can't, same K and T, but in the middle, you have A. That's it. There is no n. There is an oral vowel in cat and a nasal
2: vowel in can't, and that's what makes the difference between the two words. Ah, and that, and so going back to what you were saying before, so it's actually the consonants that change the vowel to become nasal. Yes. And then slowly and slowly that vowel becomes nasal, and people just pronounce it as a nasal yes, vowel. Yes.
0: Yeah. And when you get to the point in the evolution of that that sound change, where the speaker starts to cognitively contribute the nasalization to the vowel and no longer to the consonant. There's no need for the consonant anymore, and it's not pronounced
2: why does it uh,
0: why does language evolve that way? That is a big question. We don't really have an answer to that um, the What we don't have an answer to is why language evolves period right It's just something that always happens so we're at If you take a snapshot of English right now, um, you're understanding me. I'm understanding you. Why don't we just stick with that, Mm. right? It works. So why does the system have to change? Hopefully someday we'll have an answer to that. We don't yet. But what we do understand are um, individual sort of uh, little reasons why certain sound changes may occur. And then the more that we can understand and put together those individual sound changes, we can get a better picture of why, as a cognitive process, do mm. humans change in this way?
2: Right. It, to me, uh, as a as a biochemist and cell biologist, it, the evolve the, uh, language evolving almost seems like how we as human beings evolve. Um, so you have these small mutations in your DNA and eventually over time, those build up and next thing you know, over like generations, thousands of generations, you have a complete new species. In this case, it would be a completely new uh, language. Yep. Um In, lang- in in our body, we have a lot of errors. So the human, even in our genome, there's a lot of nonsense in there. There's a lot of repetition. You can see there's all these errors, mm. in, and that's what supports the idea of evolution. Is it the same thing with, with languages?
0: Yes, um, but we, we view them less as errors and more as uh, variation. That's actually uh, it's crucial to our understanding of language. So... If we were not able to deal with variability, we wouldn't, for example, as children grow up, they wouldn't be able to understand speakers who are not, uh, for example, their parents, Mm. right? So anyone they meet out on the street, if they go to the market, that person does not have the same voice as their mom or their dad. If they can't deal with that kind of variation, they're not going to be able to understand them. So in both the, the cognitive process and the perception of language, and then also in how we produce language, variation is crucial to the, that whole cycle. Mm. And that variation introduces mutations, as, as you would call them in, you know, in your field of study. Right. And uh, if that, those mutations then um, start to then pr- be perceived as something significant, then you have sound change.
2: Right, okay, and those that aren't perceived to be significant are just ignored. Exactly. Ah, that's interesting. Um, what I was trying to get to with the previous question also is, you know, uh, one of the reasons why we don't know, we we do know there isn't an intelligent design uh, when it comes to species and human beings is because of all these other mutations that aren't, as, as you said, aren't significant so aren't noticed in our biology. Uh, and you can look at the evolution of species and you can see that this isn't the best way of doing it, but through evolution, we've come to this point and it works well enough to survive. Mm. Um, when you look at language, is, is there s- similarity in, in the sense that do we have man-made languages that are, like, what would be the difference? I'm thinking, I don't know, I have this thought that if there was a, a man made language it would be there would be it would be much more uh, efficient there'd be uh you wouldn't have n- uh consonants and sounds and phonemes that aren't really necessary for communication because of trial and error that might arise from normal language development is is, is
0: would that be fair to say mm. Not quite sure about that. I mean, we do have man made languages like. the um, like Throcky in Game of Thrones? Yeah, and Elvish and um, Klingon and uh, even Esperanto as not. So the idea behind Esperanto is that it's not a fictional language. It's, it's a language that people have created to actually use to communicate. Um, but uh, these languages don't they don't seem to work in the same way that natural human languages do, um, and the ways that they do work are often borrowed from real human languages. Um, So we're very good as a species at um, pattern recognition and um, taking signals and processing them and sifting out what's important and what's not, and when we apply that to language, we come up with something that uh, internally our cognitive process can do that we can't do um explicitly quite yet it's not as well right. so we're just really good at creating systems like that
2: yeah. um okay um for people who may not be in your field and uh uh I have a lot of friends who are in the hard science not that not to say this is, this isn't hard because you guys actually quantify tongue with them, but uh, a lot of my friends wouldn't be uh, aware of what you guys are doing what would be like the utility of studying language
0: well um let's talk about I guess maybe the utility of studying speech production because that's that's what I do and sure. that's what I m- know more about um, well if you if you want to take real-world examples even outside of the field of speech um, production science um, Where's, uh, <laughs> all right. So my, uh, my iPhone here, uh, my microphone is currently broken, but if I were to, uh, you know, talk to Siri yeah. and Siri's to understand me and talk back to me in a way that I can understand, none of that is possible without the work that we do. Oh, wow. So by studying how humans do this and how we do it efficiently and well, um, we're better able to uh, inform the models for both uh, speech recognition of computers and then speech synthesis and production. So if you look at um, teams, really large uh, technical teams who who work for uh, these sort of goals like um, Google or Amazon or whoever, they always have linguists working with them Mm. as part of the team. uh, Because you need to understand how the humans work Mm. in order to then Uh, better develop the the correct models
2: Oh, that's interesting yeah you have to be able so you can mimic what they what they are doing um okay um so you're looking in our project when i worked with you we're looking at the differences between uh the the tongue shape differences between singing and 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 speech Mm. um Tell us a little bit about that, because are you still working on on the project?
0: Yeah, so that's an ongoing project um, that uh, eventually we'll we'll be able to publish something with it, but it's a lot of work because we have a a lot of data to sift through. Um, From the preliminary results, what we find is that uh, one constant difference across the singers that we're looking at is the importance of opening up the oral cavity to allow air to flow and resonate. Um, So no matter what the the vowel is, so Mm. examples of vowels are like E, A, U, A, O... Let's go through them. So E, 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 A, 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 O, 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 O... Okay? So the tongue has to be in a very specific place for you to be able to recognize what that vowel is, right? That's different from, so E versus U, the tongue is in a completely different place. Um, Regardless, singers will still move the position of the tongue in a way that sort of balances being able to have the audience still recognize what that vowel is, but then also provide enough air in the oral cavity for air uh, or, or enough room in the oral cavity for air to come through and resonate um, That seems to be one of the primary goals for uh, these professional singers is positioning the vocal tract in a way that you can still make smaller changes of the tongue and get distinction between vowels but then overall the vowels still have a large area for air to move and resonate
2: right. So when we think about the voice um, and the movement of, of the tongue and other parts of the, v- the vocal tract, w- what is it altering per se? Uh, I mean, you're, you're moving the tongue, but what what we, I think form and frequencies was something that we covered in, in that unit.
0: Yeah, so that's also an area that we're still trying to figure out um, what precisely acoustically is the goal of speech and what is the goal of production? and What is the goal of perception? Um, Formant frequencies are a good way to um, distill vowel sounds down into just a number of different variables that we can measure and then describe differences between vowels. Um, They also uh, seem to be important for perception between vowels. So if you synthesize just those formants and you don't have all that extra acoustic information, you can still reasonably get a difference between different vowels. Um, But the real answer is much more complex than that. And we're still trying to dig into, in this very complex um, acoustic system, what is actually important for um, perceiving sounds as um not only different sounds Mm -hmm. you know difference between e and ooh but what for example makes a sound um sound like robotic like siri or how do you know that that is siri and not an actual person on the phone we're still not there yet and it's that kind of research where we try to better understand what are we missing Mm -hmm. in those acoustics that we can better replicate
2: so do we know how much do we know about that so far
0: um less than we should um, so format frequencies work very well but they're based ultimately off of um, modeling the the vocal tract as a straight tube and that has uh, varying constrictions along it and uh, that's a model that's now um, about 50 or 60 years old that uh, I believe we can definitely improve upon to get uh, more accurate results so for example Uh, formant changes that we you know contribute broadly to how high the tongue is in the mouth um, or how forward it is in the mouth, they differ depending on where the tongue was first at in the mouth. So if the tongue is forward in the mouth, moving it up and down or forward and back doesn't quite have the same result as if the tongue is far back in the mouth, moving it up and back and forth doesn't give the same results.
2: That's interesting. Why?
0: Uh, Because the the vocal tract is not a straight tube <laughs> it's uh, it's a very complicated system that is first of all it's not straight um, it's got mucus it you know can change its shape as air builds up it can you know it can increase in volume um, it's a very dynamic system that is different from speaker to speaker so uh, we really need to get a better understanding of what is, what is common across speakers Mm. um, that uh, is still accounted for in that sort of biological
2: system. Right. Besides the the, the tube model, have they made any sort of mathematical models which resemble the vocal tract more accurately?
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And uh, in even very small parts of the vocal tract, so a lot of headway has been made in just modeling uh, the vocal folds. Okay, so the vocal folds are in your larynx and they are um, f- folds of flesh, basically, that are held together through cartilage that you can either open them or close them. Um, and that's a very simplistic uh, model of vocal folds. You open them and close them. Well really, there's a third dimension where um, it has thickness and then the vocal folds, as air builds up behind them, they start to separate at the bottom or then the top And then as soon as there's high enough pressure, then they open and then they come back together in a reverse order. So the Bernoulli effect in action um, and that sort of three-dimensional aspect to just a very small part of the vocal tract, there's been um, lots of researchers who have worked in trying to um, account for all of those differences mathematically and um, have come up with actually some very accurate models. And that's just you know, just a centimeter eight, of the yeah. vocal tract.
2: <laughs> this reminds me of like chemists and physicists trying to model like just subatomic particles within like 10 nanometer space and it takes all the computing power they right, have yeah. for like 10 nanoseconds, you know? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. But to understand the entire system, you have to understand the parts, right? You have to,
2: yeah. Yep. What, what has been a challenge in your field uh, in, in characterizing these... Uh, the differences or the the vocal tract, what's the biggest challenge in your opinion?
0: Uh, The biggest challenge uh, I would say is um, finding still uh, the most accurate mapping between what goes on in the vocal tract and what we record in the acoustics. So not only... So what we were talking about previously is once you have the acoustic signal... What parts of those are important for perception and describing a vowel? But even before you get there, we still don't have a complete understanding uh, of a unified description of when the vocal tract changes in very specific and minute ways, how does that affect the acoustics? Because that is... um, Well, we'll go back to the example of the nasal vowels. So... That's completely different when the vocal tract changes if the velum is open or if the velum is closed and no air is coming out of the nose. And then when the velum is lowered and open, those changes, uh, the, the effect on the acoustics is, is not the same. So, um, one, it's a, it's a modeling issue, but the bigger problem is still trying to find a way of getting the correct data because you always have a trade-off between um, how accurate both spatially and temporally your signal is and what you can measure, um, and then also what you get from the acoustics. So this system right here, the ultrasound, this works really well for um, getting good spatial and temporal resolution. And as you can see, it's not, I have nothing in my mouth, mm-hmm. so we can get really good acoustics, but we're limited in what we're looking at. right The tongue is only one part of the vocal tract. It's a very large part of the vocal tract and it's a very interesting part but we're not getting all the information. Mm. So in order to get that you have to use different tools and those tools only look at a different part of the vocal tract. And so then you get decades of research where everyone is trying to use all of these different pieces to try to understand that question. Mm. And um, I think the answer is uh, ultimately going to be an MRI (laughs) because (laughs) you, you get all the information about the vocal tract, right. uh but the downside is there is the acoustics aren't as good
2: right because there's, there, it's so loud it's, it's very the, loud yes it's, <laughs> it's super loud, yeah that's interesting yeah that that it's as i'm talking- that as i'm talking with you, it reminds me of my own project. I have this issue of uh you know if if I want to to be like have high temporal resolution, I miss. On, on the spatial resolution. If I want the spatial resolution, I can't get the temporal resolution. And so th- th- I can only get a, a, s- a snapshot of things. And then it's through multiple snapshots with different techniques, can you start to build a, yep. an image of what's happening?
0: Classical problem of signal processing. <laughs> Any signal has that problem. Yep.
2: Yeah. Okay, um, so you mentioned the the ultrasound here. We. There's another, the EMA system. Can you tell us a, a little bit about that? Because that, that's really cool, actually. Yeah,
0: so what this is uh, good at, um, you can see in the image there, we, we get very good temporal resolution in that we can see very quick actions. Mm-hmm. We get good spatial resolution in the sense of um, you can get a, an accurate representation of the entire surface of the tongue, but only in two dimensions, Mm. right? So that depends on the orientation of this probe that I have underneath my tongue. And currently, I have it oriented in the sagittal plane so that you can see the surface of the tongue. Yep. You can see the surface of the tongue from the back, which is on the left. So if I say, ka, 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 that's the back of my tongue. Mm. And then the front of the tongue on the right. So if I say, ta, 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 (laughs) ta, that's the front of the tongue. But what I'm missing is the fact that the tongue is a three-dimensional structure. I don't get any of that information here. Now, I could change the probe orientation and get the coronal plane, but then I'm missing everything that's going on in the sagittal plane. Where the emma comes in is that, uh, so, I don't know if, oh, you can see it in the background here. Okay, so this system here if you can see the wires that are hanging down, at the end of those wires um, are little tiny um, electromagnetic coils that um, we use the property of um, electromagnetic decay um, to know, so 1 over R squared, we know, based on that, how far away those sensors are from that blue box which is emitting electromagnetic field of certain strength at certain frequencies. So based on that very... um, very basic understanding of physics, we can glue those on the vocal tract and know where they're moving as the tongue moves in three dimensions, right? So we get that three-dimensional aspect. But again, there's the trade-off. You only know where those sensors are. Mm -hmm. You don't get the entire surface of, of the tongue. But like in the singing project, you can combine both to get a better representation of what is going on over the entire surface of the tongue in the sagittal plane, and at the same time, what are the sides of the tongue are doing in three dimensions? Yeah. Yeah, that's important, right? Because it could be up, it could be like that, or concave. And It can also, the sides of the tongue, so for the example, uh, the sound ol. Mm. okay, so the L sound, mm-hmm. what's important there, so you can't see it here, so ol. so if I say la, 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 oh. la, that's going to look a lot like Ta 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 ta, except what you don't see is that on the sides of the tongue they're compressed inward to allow air to flow around oh. for ul, and you don't get that with T. You don't get you. Know, you can't see that on the ultrasound. Obviously, you would be able to see that and get an indication of that with the uh, the Emma system.
2: That is so cool. Uh, I, mean, like, I think so. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's fascinating because. It, I'm I'm fascinated by how things work, and the more you learn about your body, the more you realize how amazing it is. Yeah, like you wouldn't—I would have never thought about this. Um, You know how the how the air comes out, the different shapes that you have to maintain in your mouth to pronounce certain words and vowels. That that's mind blowing.
0: It's a very small part of the body too. Proportionally, you look at the rest of the body and what the rest of the body does. All of speech production is, well, minus the lungs, which provides the power and the air, it's all right here. You know, this small area of the body does everything, Mm. right? And so that's what we study, is what that small area of the body does. Like you said at the beginning um, uh, uh, of the interview, you have a vocal tract, I have a vocal tract, 7 billion people in the world have a vocal tract, and yet out of that shared area, we get over 7,000
2: recorded languages. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> okay cool let's let's talk about um, a couple of things so we've, we've spoke th- spoken a bit about your journey now your research which was fascinating let's focus uh, towards the future okay what do you want to accomplish with yourself I often ask this to scientists and I know it's a big question but um, people have different people have different motivations into getting science uh, mm-hmm. I've met people who generally feel like they have an obligation to change the world in whatever small sense. Uh, uh, and then there are other people who just want to pursue something that they're very interested in and there's no like this grand plan of changing the world, you know um, but I'm curious what what do you want to accomplish with yourself before you leave? Um, I think well both are parts
0: of my, my end goal but I think uh, ultimately it's 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 more the latter I really love what I'm doing and I just want to continue doing that um But a great, I don't want to say side effect, but um, a- along with doing what I love, I also love the fact that we can understand more of who we are as a species. I mean that's the curiosity of what is human is one of the biggest things that makes us human is knowing what makes us human, right? Mm. And so to be able to contribute to that in understanding, like I mentioned before, the if you think about the things that, m- that set us apart as a species. This sort of complex communication that we're engaged in right now is one of the hallmarks of Mm. human, Mm. right? Of homo sapiens, the fact that we can do this and to be able to understand that better while at the same time getting to do every day what I love is, it's great. Mm. I mean, I couldn't ask for anything more than that.
2: Yeah. Where do you see your field going in about 50 years time?
0: Ooh, uh, computation.
2: Can you elaborate?
0: Yep. Uh, So anyone who wants to get into the field um, or really any field, my advice is learn programming of some sort, research the field, understand what languages people are using and learn them Um, because this is where the field is going and in a very um, concrete way, if you look at what jobs are available in the field, that that that's what they're they're moving towards. So, whereas even just a few years ago, you look at what jobs people are advertising, um, it used to be more traditionally uh, phonetics, right? Now, if you look at what are basically the same description as phonetics mm. are not listed as phonetics; they're listed as computational linguistics, ah. because this is where. Um, I think most of the advances are going to be made is in um, the fact that we have all of these tools available to us, but we need to utilize them in a way uh, to get more data and understand that data, and that takes better computational models and also more inventive thinking about how to use the technologies and the signals. Um, So that's most of my work is in... So within, within linguistics, there are all these different areas, um, and then my area is in phonetics. And even within phonetics, I'm in the sort of engineering part of the phonetics, right? So what I do is, is basically uh, engineering of, of the vocal tract. So it's, it's all signal analysis and image analysis to try to get to some goal and... That goal is usually different depending on who I happen to be working with. Mm-hmm. So singing, for example, with Professor Kathy Best, she's really interested in that because she has professional singing training. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's the engineering problem, right? Um, one research that uh, project that I'm currently working on uh, is trying to understand. So of the two muscles of the jaw that um, both attach to the same uh, part of the jaw right behind uh, here. So there's the lateral pterygoid which uh, connects to um, the uh, the condyle and then there's also the medial pterygoid um, which goes vertically and connects to the jaw, trying to understand um, how those two are related for speech production. Um, so what I have is a lot Of data, different signals. We have EMMA signals. We have uh, signals of intramuscular um, activity of wires that were put into those muscles. And I have a goal, right? So my my uh, uh, sort of job every time I I sit down in front of the computer every day is try to get to that goal with Mm. this
2: mess of data, Mm. right? And that's
0: horribly fun. I love
2: it. It seems like. You, you've you've had the advantage of of having these skills, uh, engineering and uh, sound engineering. Would you say or signal engineering? I, I don't even know what to call or it.
0: Just si- signal processing. Signal processing
2: yeah. and and compu- like programming and and so those are the skills that would enable you to work on not just what you're doing here, but all sorts of projects. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that must be very useful.
0: Yeah, even if I wanted to. Um uh not work in academia anymore and work in uh, technology and industry in, in some way, um, those are necessary tools, right? And it's actually becoming, it's, it's coming to the point within academia, it's, it's becoming necessary. Um, you have to have good statistical knowledge and you really, to be able to get above and beyond the research that's already been done, requires uh, computational know-how. Um, but you don't have to have a background in it. When I did, I was in a French department. Yeah. (laughs) They didn't teach us programming (laughs) in French, right? They taught us Baudelaire and, you know, stuff like that. Um, so I learned it from, from scratch. You know, I had a professor in the linguistics department who taught me what he knew and I looked online and I talked with other students who were learning it. And, uh, And then I got to the point where I I could do it. So it's not like to be able to, if you want to get into linguistics, you don't have to have, uh, you know, a degree in computer science. You can learn it along the way and then do the
2: work. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. So you're self-taught.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Because nobody, I mean, as you can imagine, it's not a huge field. So it's not like companies are making all of the software to analyze these signals. You have to do it yourself. Yeah. That's interesting.
2: Okay. Um, looking into the future, and this could be in whatever context. Wh- what scares you the most?
0: Oof. Um, on a pragmatic level, um, jobs finding finding jobs that are continuing. So we were talking about this earlier before the interview, but um, uh, so the job that I have here, I love, but it's part of a short term contract, which is coming up to its close. And so in a couple of months, I'm moving to Munich uh, in Germany. There is uh, the Institute for Phonetics and Speech Processing. It's a research institute that, as the name suggests, is just dedicated to phonetics and speech processing, th- the work that I do. Um, and I'm really, really happy about that. That's also another short-term contract for three years. Mm. So eventually, I would like to get to the point where I can continue doing the work that I love and not have to worry about packing up everything and moving somewhere else in the world in another couple of years. Um so I think that that on a pragmatic level, you know, putting food on the table is that. Right. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, you gotta feed your cat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he eats a lot. That's funny. Um last question, and we're almost reaching almost an hour now, fifty something minutes. Oh well. Wow. Yeah, time flies. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully this is
0: still recording. Okay. Hopefully.
2: Um what would be some advice you'd pass on to students coming up?
0: Um I would say, well, a couple of things. Following up on what I just said about my biggest fear, don't let that dissuade you from getting into science. Um, If I didn't love what I do, um, I wouldn't put up with (laughs) this life of just a couple of years here and there. Um, But I do love what I do, so it makes it worth it, right? Um, And uh, the other sort of more practical advice is, uh, I mentioned earlier, learn programming. I have, I have students who, uh, who struggle with that and, um, it's, uh, it, you, you can see it's actually, um, becoming a hindrance to getting their work out because people want this, right? Mm. So we went through, well, we, the history of, you know, phonetics went through stages where when phonetics really, uh, had a, a great push in the, the seventies and eighties for qualitative descriptive, um, uh research on speech production you can get away with just saying okay this is what we see here and it looks like this and it looks like that can't do that anymore you need to have really solid statistical evidence Mm -hmm. which is good that should be a proper progression Um, but really it's becoming harder to even get away with just good statistical uh, modeling of um, you know one snapshot of an ultrasound frame for this particular word versus another. To advance the field, people want to get understanding of what is the time course of speech and how do we get uh, entire sentences out in all the sounds involved. And to do that, like I mentioned earlier, that's a a computational problem. You're not going to be able to get that by just sitting there and manually doing something, you know, tracing an ultrasound frame or something like that for... Mm -hmm. 30 frames per second (laughs) you know in the course of speech it's not going to happen right so and like i said there aren't tools to do this you know uh industry wise you know no big companies have made this Mm -hmm. so if you want to do that work you have to create the tools yourself so learn programming um, it's a lot of fun. Don't be scared by it. I would tell that to students, too. It's it, it's a blast, Yeah. Um, but it, it's becoming to the point where it's a necessary tool in the field.
2: Any particular language in, in
0: programming? It really depends on um, what your field is. Uh, MATLAB is very, very big in, in my field, uh, but R is also incredibly uh, big as well not only just for the statistical modeling and the visualization but it's becoming more popular for doing some of the analysis that we traditionally do in MATLAB. Um, Python is also um, very uh, good across fields of science that's a um, a good language to start with because um, the concepts that you learn in Python Mm -hmm. you can use those in MATLAB and R they're all very similar Um, Julia is also another sort of up-and-coming language that's um, that's free and sort of a uh, it's meant to be um, uh, a counterpart to MATLAB that you don't have to pay for Um, but the ones I use the most are MATLAB and R.
2: Cool Uh, I want to thank you so much for your time Chris. Thank you for doing this,
0: this is great.
1: We gotta go, so Siri Go oh, yeah. to blabcoats.com. <laughs> hey, Siri. If your phone's going to blabcoats.com now, thank the linguists. Hey. Yeah. Exactly right. That's <laughs> yeah. exactly right. Hey,
2: Siri, Google blabcoats.com. Hey, Siri, send Alex a message. <laughs> hey, make a... No, I can't even do that. I messed it up. But yeah, Siri is because of... uh oh, came about because of work that um, linguists like Chris do you know yeah i've always found linguistics
1: really interesting it's something that i've never like formally studied but like whenever i you know you hear little bits through the grapevine you talk to linguists and things like that and it sounds like a fascinating
2: research area dude it is um because I, I did a project with chris and this is how i got to know him and uh it was a unit that i did for my master's learning and processing human language and they had a project available so the way you do this unit was you work on the project as well as your attend lectures and whatever yeah and as soon as I saw uh, the name of the topic was Articulatory Differences Between Singing and Speech, and I thought, oh, this is cool as shit. Because I have. Because you're a wannabe singer. <laughs> no, I have friends. <laughs> I have friends. I think it would be a cool school to learn, but I, I have friends who can sing, and I'm always amazed at them. Um, oh, by them, I should say. Because we have like a vocal track, and they have a vocal track, and yet they can use their instrument to produce specific sounds you know to to sing which is so important um and in that project it made me realize i'm like oh it's all like manipulation it's not oh, like yeah. people are gi- sure people are gifted in terms of they have a good like a. some
1: people can do it better naturally than others yeah and also just the quality it's of this sound thing
2: oh yeah. yeah it's just very much like athletics it made me realize i'm like oh all this is is just muscle memory they have to have certain shapes to produce certain vowels and um, essentially all that we did we spoke about this with Chris a little bit so how they think about the vocal track is like a tube model if you think like a tube and we'll actually link some videos uh, on our Facebook to show you some of the like they have x-rays but they also have like these tube models uh, of of of, of of the vocal track and they are shaped in a certain way and if you put it on like th- it's like this little machine that makes this buzzing noise which represents the vocal cord. But if you p- if you connect that it actually goes, oh, like as soon as you remove it, it's like it it, it models different vowels. That's cool. Manipulating how the vocal tract should be. So it's really cool. And the model, as it goes, as, as I understand it, is that you have this hollow tube and then you have different points of constriction. Mm. And that different point of constriction can be achieved by the movement of your tongue. So if you say something like, ah, uh, the back of your tongue is actually flat and it's down, right? Yeah. Versus, ee the tongue is up. So what you're doing is you're constricting at different parts of that, of that tube and you can move that constriction point forward or backwards and that changes the, the, the the quality of the sound and even the vowel itself. Yeah. So it's really cool and what, um, Chris and I were doing in that project was to see, okay, how does the vowel, how does the tongue move uh, when when a singer is pronouncing like an u for singing versus an u when they're speaking, and we found that uh, in fact singers have a lower tongue position yeah. than in spe- in singing versus speech, and again that was to create more resonance, to create more space in the mouth, so that when the when the when the when the sound is coming out from the vocal cords. Um, it resonates more. Um, It's like, um, uh, what it is, it's it's a bit like singing. Uh, You know, you've seen those operatic singers where they're like, and they crack the glass. So what they're trying to do, it's the same thing with your head. So you produce a certain frequency and you manipulate it so that it only resonates certain frequencies. Mm. And it's really cool. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of like playing saxophone. Um, a similar thing. So when you play saxophone, you want to put warm air into the instrument. So you have to, when you're breathing through the instrument, you have to manipulate your breath in a way that you're producing warm air. So that's the difference between like a kind of, and a close mm. kind of blow. You get mm. that warm air out and it's all to do with throat manipulation. Mm. And also there's things like flutter tonguing and you can produce like harmonics and things underneath the notes. Um, and um, by just manipulating your tongue shape and things like that while you're playing it. And I'm pretty sure like most wind instruments have that type of characteristic as well. So it's not even just singing.
2: Yeah. You know, what, what? the weirdest thing I learned about this is that you could have like one frequency. So you could have like, you can hold a single note. And in fact... That's what your vocal cords do, but by changing the vocal tract, it emphasizes it's like every note like a C on a keyboard contains all the other notes yeah, within all it. The harmonics, yeah. All the other notes within it. And what your vocal track actually does, it it emphasizes certain parts. Yeah. So when you hear a C, that C is the most prominent mm. in that in that note, right? But all the other notes exist in it as yeah, well. Yeah. And what your vocal track can do, which is so amazing. Is that it can really emphasize certain parts of of that note, I suppose, um, which is cool. So you can have the same frequency, but what y- what you do with your uh, vocal track can ch- completely change the sound of yeah, it. Yeah, it's,
1: it's selecting different harmonics out of that range. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, and it also reminds me, like, because um, uh, my son Finley was started kindergarten this year, and so he's been learning. Um, to read and write and and he has sometimes had a bit of trouble at first producing t sounds mm. and uh th sounds mm. um, for like words like the and things like this and i only just you start to realize it yourself when you're trying to help him out you're, you're giving him directions about where to put his tongue in his mouth to produce those sounds and when he gets that right he gets the sound right mm. yeah it's amazing
2: it's amazing how much uh actually goes into producing Speech and how much of it is unconscious and we don't even realize. That's what, it.
1: Yeah, that's what I was just about to bring up next. It was kind of how, it, in a kind of, it's a nice segue into what you were saying about French and how uh, some of their sounds are distinguished by whether they're putting air out of their nose or not mm. and to produce yeah. To, yeah, to produce the sound. But I like how he said that the French people like it's as a definite factor but they're not even aware of it consciously. It just mm. They just kind of do the sound. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. It kind of reminded me of, I think, Mandarin, because you speak Mandarin, how they have different pitches. Uh, and when you speak Mandarin, you, are you aiming for a different pitch or is it just kind of happen like as an accent?
2: So that's a, a really good question. So when you learn the words, for example, which is like to do, right? is a different pitch. is like yesterday, but yeah. is like to do but when you're learning it you have to learn those pitches specifically and then you have to say that word with that certain tonal pitch yeah over and over again until it becomes muscle memory until you don't have to think about it do anymore. you think
1: yeah i guess that's it'd be because you're learning it as an outsider yeah. you probably have to think a lot about it oh, but what what oh. about but what about people who just grow up speaking mandarin mm. as their na- native language you'd think Maybe they, I don't know, do they have to think about it to that extent no, or does no. it just become innate?
2: No, they, they don't have, to, I don't think they have to think about it, just like you don't have to think about the words that are coming out of your mouth. Yeah, yeah. Because English is a stress uh, language, it's not a tonal language. So everything that you do, you don't have to think about. But someone who's learning English, like um, in Dari, we don't have th, right? We have sa and like. It's it's a it's a slight distinction. It's Mm. like sa and th like it's it's two different things, but it's not a th. So I think I've mentioned this before. When I came to Australia I couldn't hear th because it just wasn't in my language. Yeah. Right? And so when, when I when I used to say like third, instead of third I used to say third. (laughs) (laughs)
1: that's unfortunate (laughs) i I came in third third. (laughs) Uh. so
2: so it was it was hard it's the same thing with tonal languages so if you're brought up in that environment where all you hear is tonal changes you just embody that and you don't even realize it i got fortunate in that when i was learning english i was about seven eight years old and because of that like a lot of it was just unconscious learning picking up from the environment And it was much easier than what I'm trying to do with Mandarin which is I have to consciously do everything step by step until I it becomes part of my body and then I don't have to think about the low order function like the low order um, uh, moves but rather high order moves you know so it's like hockey and jujitsu man when you reach a certain point yeah yeah, when you reach a certain point I don't have to think about I have to put my foot there my leg there my arms here I have to distribute my here. no all I want to think about is I need to get to that position I need to tap him out like this and my Mm -hmm. body just finds a way
1: when you're trying to learn the the move or learn the the new thing that's when it you, you have, have to, to really slow it down it, yeah really
2: slow it down, down and repeat that so yeah. many times that it becomes it's the same different. as
1: music and everything
2: it's, it's the same it's the same with anything in uh, life yeah i don't think it changes for anything i know yeah that's something I've. The more different things I realized, like recently, um, me and my nephew started archery. And it's so analogous to everything else we do in life. Yeah. It's all about trying to, again, make those fundamental mechanisms or, or moves part of you. So make that them you, become a habit. Exactly. And you don't have to think about you it anymore. You don't have to think yeah. about it And then you can think about other things. And slowly you just do that, do that until you don't have to think about like a big portion of what you do. It's just, I want to hit the target. Boom, hit the target. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting things to
1: come out of that conversation was uh, when he was talking about the evolution of language. Mm. So, and, and I think you asked him, there was a good question, like, why does language evolve? And, yeah, I, it well, seems strange. Like, why would there be a selection
2: pressure? Because you'd think there would have to be some type of selection pressure on it. So, so yeah, that's a good question. Um, I Even after the interview, I was trying to get to what causes... Uh, language to evolve and i believe what it was to a certain degree he said that it's misperception so if i pronounce a word to you and you misperceive it so you hear it differently yeah and then you pronounce it differently so
1: it replicates so it's almost like uh like a um, mutation yeah in the language but then but then the question has begs to be asked why do all languages evolve Towards this uh, type of consonants that he was talking about, where the consonants um, influence the vowels, because he said that, didn't he? That most languages, or maybe a lot of languages, evolve along this specific pathway. So then, so then, it, if it is just a, a mishearing of a particular word or a particular sound, why do they all follow this similar pathway? Like, wow. is that is that because of the way of our the way our the way you the, the, the physiologically <laughs> The way our uh, throats and things are set up, or is it something else? Um, that's a- a- and if it is physiological, then mm. why didn't languages evolve that way in the first place?
2: That is a good. Question. I, ha- I have no answers for those questions. Yeah. <laughs> those
1: Questions are, are just questions that I occurred to me when I was listening to
2: it. I, yeah. Do you yeah. know what? It reminds me of when you ask why does uh, why do <laughs> mutations happen at, at the DNA level? We know that UV light causes. But well, no, mutations. not why they happen, but like, why do they happen a particular way? So ex- exactly, yeah. yeah. So why does an A become whatever? You know, what I mean, I think uh, it. But it, it's it,
1: but, but that's random, right? In in DNA, but sure. I think what he was saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's actually not random. In language because they go to this similar pathway where what was it the consonants uh, change the sound of the, vowel, the vowel to yeah. make it become more nasal yeah and then after a point people start putting that nasal inflection on the vowel itself and he's saying how american um the american accents kind of heading that way french yeah. is kind of already there where they have these different vowel sounds now one nasal and one not and It's interesting if languages do follow this similar pathway, why do they converge? Like, I kind of get why. There might be differences and why they might evolve, but why do they converge along a single pathway? That's maybe, interesting.
2: Maybe, may, I, I don't think this may, I don't think it's the only pathway that's possible. Yeah. I think it's one of the ways. It might that be language dependent too. Yeah, but probably, but it's probably one of the ways that languages evolve. You know, there may be multiple mm. ways of how languages evolve, and this is one way that we're aware of. So that if you have like Kant, right? C-A-N-T, not C-U-N-T. C-A-N-T, like you can pronounce the N there, but it's very easy for that N to become nasal. can yeah. Like you can you can make the nasal in slowly, okay. yes, over iterations over like over time, it's easy to see how that that N sound can make the cause it lends
1: con- its nasality to yeah. the vowel sound.
2: So yeah. we have to kind of uh, just describe what a, a vowel and the difference between a vowel and a consonant is when you're pronouncing it. So a vowel is usually not usually but open, like you throw this open and the air is coming out like ah, oo, e, or a consonant is when that air s- s- is constricted in a certain point. In a certain point, like ka, you restricted at the back. Ta, you restricted at the front. Um, and n is restricted at the front. Mm. But you can see that by saying n, there's a possibility of you uh, bringing some nasality to that. So the air, yeah. instead of coming through your mouth, could also go through your nose. And you could, you could imagine that over time, like like uh, a, a consonant that's n could um can slowly become like a a nasal consonant and then that could slowly shift the vowel to become a nasal vowel over time so it's almost like it's coloring that vowel and that happening over and over again like over generations is what he's trying to study see so he's looking at how english because French French has already gone through this evolution of mm. the N becoming a nasal N and then the vowel becoming yeah. essentially uh, that nasal R. Like uh, French people are very known to do that. I don't know why they're driven towards that. Maybe it's environmental de- uh, dependent. In fact, if I can share with you a, a a hypothesis or maybe a theory, this may be a legit theory. <laughs> <laughs> legit theory.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, anyway, go on so languages like like uh you know the pacific islanders in africa they're very open and i don't mean that in any disrespectful way but it's open mouth yeah. it's it's a lot air whereas like russian and Serbian, it's like close I, I can't even know it's like closed mouth yeah. right and so the 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 idea is that when you're in open space Right, there's less chance of you actually giving germs to other people. So you talk freely, or you know, like this. Whereas when you're in, when you're inside, when it's cold, you have to close your mouth to stop spreading germs. And so people who would speak, oh, hey, we are inside, like this, with a big mouth open inside, you'd spread more germs. And over generations, those people would die because they'd be more prone to uh, getting diseases. So like em- interesting hypothesis. Yeah. It it may be a legit theory. I want people to actually look it up and, and <laughs> <because> <laughs> Why don't you look it up. <laughs> man. I'm just here to talk, not <laughs> to actually do research. <laughs> uh,
1: I think we couldn't, um, we couldn't do this post chat without mentioning the recent, uh, Facebook chat bot kind of issues where, so if people don't know this, actually, let me just bring the news story up. So I don't like fully like stuff this. If, People might have don't aren't familiar with this story. Basically, you know, lots of Facebook pages, Google, and things, Facebook uh, social media pages. They have chat bots, right? So you can go on and and chat to these these bots, and like they try and convince you that they're a a, a real person and things like that. They can do stuff. Siri's a good example of a chat bot. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, these two Facebook chat bots recently had to be shut down because they were talking to each other. And through talking to each other, they actually developed their own language. And so no extra problems happened. Facebook kind of just shut them down. But it's amazing. And it'd be interesting to see, like, with future developments, if these types of artificial languages, not artificial in the sense of being developed by humans, but being artificial as in developed by machines, Mm. how they differ from human or natural produced languages. That'd be really interesting. We should we should breed out the uh, chat box yeah, conversation, we but didn't like Facebook f- uh, trip out because they didn't know they're like oh yeah uh, yeah I don't, they don't know what it means I don't think uh, you, you should s- let's do the conversation because okay, it's really have interesting it have have yeah I've got it here let's
2: look so ahead. who's gonna be uh, well, I think the, oh, it the chat box so I'll be, Dodd. Uh, be Bob so all right, Bob. so you're Bob and I'll, I'll be Alice first of so all who I came up with do these an name? Alice
1: voice oh hello My <laughs> and you better Alice. do a Bob voice
2: yeah mate Good day. my name's Bob. That might be overkill on the Bob voice. All but right, mate, uh, <laughs> how about we go to an Australian Bob over here? All right, mate, uh, Bob's line goes like this. I can't, I, I, everything else.
1: Balls have zero to me, 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 to. Me too.
2: You, I, everything else.
1: Balls have a ball to me, to me, to me, to me, to me, to me, to me.
2: Wait, why is Alice so obsessed with balls?
1: Yeah. Well, no, she's obsessed with herself, I think. No, it's balls and her. It's got to do
2: with balls and her. I can, I, 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 everything else. Balls have a ball to me.
1: To me, to me, to me, to me, to me, to me. I Balls have zero to me, 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 to me. And this is where Bob is offering his balls. You, I, everything else. Now Bob gets in on the action. You've got to read it properly. Yeah, You, I, everything else. No, 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 you're not. It's you, I, 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 everything else. That's a language, right? They're repeating it. Balls have naught to me, to me, to me, to me, to me. There's like to me, to me, too. And then Bob says, This goes on and on until I, uh, until Mark Zuckerberg goes cancel, basically. You I I
2: I I everything else. Balls have zero it's a very to very machine. What I
1: like about this, it's a very um, it's a very machine like language, isn't it? Like mm. it's it seems to be working on a number of repetitions of certain words and yeah. sounds like that as well. So there's a deeper communication here. It's like those those sentences mean nothing in English. Yeah. But uh, it might mean something. But the number of repetitions. So it's working on the number of repetitions and where things sit in in the sentences. Yeah. So they're developing their own languages. Very,
2: very to interesting. What if they're planning to take over the world? This is how like, Terminator <laughs> begins. it's yeah. with Skynet, Skynet. Is, SkyNet is Google and Facebook put together, and these assholes started s- through a love of balls. Oh. Uh, exactly. And Alice everything to do with balls and her (laughs) that's that's so messed up dude but that's scary because um what if they get to a point like they say oh okay we'll just go for round two trials and then these guys just plan the doom and the downfall of civilization and next minute these guys have like the 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 robots or this program has access to the internet just takes over and then we do have skynet and then you have like nuclear bombs coming at each other, like people like Russia and America fighting. Oh, dude, this is the end. We should kill all politicians. don't let them story. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not do that.
1: (laughs) Let's not do that. It also brings up like, and this is actually something that I think you guys touched on really briefly, but it also brings up like that, um, like what it means to be human, you know, Mm. what separates uh, humans from the animals. and, And obviously language is one of those things. But then if we make machines that have their own language is that line getting instantly more blurry then between man and machine? Dude, that's scary. That's scary. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're like, let's list off the things that humans have over that separates us from the other animals, yeah? Yeah. And we've got like language. We've got the ability to do science and reason. Yeah. But computers can kind of do a few of these things already. Yeah. yeah? Reasoning is, you know, programmed into computers. They can work out logic and things like this. Um, And now developing languages as
2: well. Um, Soon enough, we'll create artificial intelligence that is just like us, but speaks in repetitions. Yeah. I mean, do you want balls to me, to me, to me, to (laughs) me, to me, on my face, to you, to you, to you, to you? (laughs) I don't know, man. What are you on about? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. There was one more thing I was going to talk about. I forget. Um, Oh, artificial and. And uh, naturally evolved Oh, languages. yeah, the differences between them. Well, yeah. yeah. So, no, so, well, so yeah. I should have probably asked Chris um, a question like this. So, me being the big Game of Thrones fans that I am, by the way, if you haven't watched the leak episode, hashtag losing out. Um, that would yeah. include me, I guess. Then, oh, I? Don't, let's not even talk about... Alex is like, <laughs> you haven't watched a single episode of Game of Thrones. I which feel is like
1: ch- I've already what i'm already falling off the bandwagon like i'm like i fell off the bandwagon six years ago dude there's no point even running to try and catch up now oh Oh.
2: dude now is the best time because you have six almost seven seasons maybe i'll tell you
1: what i'll make you a deal how about after i finish my thesis yeah in like five weeks time yeah i'll um start a game of thrones marathon and try and catch up to that oh dude
2: it'll be so good we won't stop talking about game of thrones uh, like that that'd be the only thing we'd talk about cuz there's so much cool shit that happens <laughs> in that but anyway they they have like valyrian as a as a language they have dothraki as a language um and i guess what i wanted to get to and i, I watched this Uh, in some video or some documentary, is that in naturally evolved languages like English and many other languages, there's a lot of redundancies syntactically, meaning how the words are put together. But there's also a lot of redundancies... In the language, because it's it's made through trial and error, so, like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, look at English. Like, all well, silent letters, silent... Like, it's just nonsense, dude. There's a lot of stuff mm. there that just makes it so much... There's rules, and there, there's so many exceptions to that rules, and so many exceptions to that exception. It just makes it so much more difficult. Whereas, I believe something like Dothraki, or Valyrian, or Klingon, Klingon, whatever that is. And by the way, chris is a big star wars and star trek fan i believe but languages like that like that have less redundancies um yeah. they're more efficient because they're they designed
1: the funny thing is though that they um i think chris they, they borrow from yeah, yeah. other languages For and that's sure. like uh he mentioned esperanto as yeah. well which is a constructed language is yeah. actually used it just borrows from other languages and takes bits and yeah. and probably get rid of a lot of those redundancies and stuff um yeah it's interesting how that happens my mum actually and when she was i think really early teaching um developed a language with one of her colleagues where they would just put the sound ob ob before every single vowel really yeah so well so if you want to say the word from has one vowel in it it'd be frob om frob om Throw bomb. Yeah. Throw that bomb. And but it's the same type of thing, isn't it? That's just a constructed language, but it's already taking that scaffold of English yeah. and just kind of adding a different element yeah. to it to make it sound different. Yeah. But it's actually kind of the same language. Yeah.
2: And this is what I was trying to make um, a connection to was to normal evolution. In that in normal evolution we see a lot of redundancies, a lot of things that aren't like the they're not the best way to do something, but because it just works and it's good enough it sticks around yeah you exactly yeah. I think the evolution of I think it was like some sort of vein they were looking at in giraffes like the from the heart to the brain or something. Uh, yeah, you know the, um, oh yeah it's the oh you passed you've forgotten on to
1: me it's like this, this, it's a nerve that goes from I think it might be the breathing nerve where it goes down and then it has to it has to go from like the back of the throat or something to like around behind the nose so it has to travel this really like short a, distance yeah yeah right but the way it does that it, it comes from fish the way it did that in fish is it went and looped down behind something so when it developed into mammals and all the other animals like that giraffe. loop was still there so yeah. the only way it couldn't like cross past the only
2: way it could evolve is to get longer and longer and longer and Just, longer yeah. yeah slowly over iterations it was it was like easier for that loop to get longer at each step than to redesign the whole thing yeah. and to make it more efficient so the laryngeal nerve laryngeal nerve. yeah so it it it's like so it it, it's, it seems so inefficient and redundant but uh, nonetheless it's, it it just shows that as long as it works it's good enough yeah you know and language is a bit like that as well as long as it works don't worry if you have all these silly exceptions all these unpronounceable like Uh, Jack Braidwith, him and I were talking about language and how this guy was spelling like words based on like how we pronounce certain vowels. So, he he wrote a word with the O, but the O is supposed to be pronounced as an E or an I Mm. because woman, there's an O in there um, or something like that. It it was just like you, you could find... Each vowel or consonant being pronounced completely differently in a different context, and that's stupid. Yeah, you know, <laughs> so it's the dumbest yeah, thing ever. Yeah. Like, why is that? Yeah. It shows that its language has evolved over time naturally. That if there was a intelligent designer behind this, they would be perfect. They wouldn't. We wouldn't have these redundancies. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's, well, yeah. I should we call it a day? I think we
1: should call it a day.
2: Yeah. That was an interesting uh conversation with chris and yeah then it's, it's fascinating linguistics is really interesting cool like shit it. uh
1: next week you always do this you always introduce <laughs> the guest next week <laughs> and we then the like and then we change change it like halfway through don't lie
2: to the listeners next week listen. don't lie to them next <laughs> week no no that's what i'm gonna say <laughs> he's next gonna week. tell you who's on next week don't trust no. him we don't no. know who's on dude, next dude, week dude, you should. no I was, I was gonna say next week we have someone we have someone we who we don't know. We'll who. definitely
1: have an episode for you next week. That's a guarantee. <laughs> we
2: have, we have, uh, I think a few good. Uh, we have lots on the shelf. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. well, we, we kinda, just have to d- kind of decide, and we always decide. Like we have so
1: many good people. We kind of am um and ah, who will be good next? Yeah. So
2: yeah, uh, just tune in and you'll find out who's on there. Like our Facebook, yeah, Twitter, Facebook, review Instagram. us on your favorite app yeah
1: I'm check t- out our videos we're recording this stuff now so you can go yeah. on our youtube account you can watch us you can watch us talking and this is really important for this episode if, if you've got to the end of this episode and you haven't gone and watched the video yet shame on you hey, bro. honestly no don't shame <laughs> people man that's that's viewing shaming don't but do- go on go and do it now Re- re-watch it check it out it's really interesting um the stuff with chris yeah
2: and that's it okay thanks for watching guys we'll see you next week Thanks for listening to Blabcoats. Rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts because it does help us spread the word. And if you like what we're doing here, then help us grow up by sharing this with a friend, a friend of a friend, or your mailman, even your mailman's mailman. We also want to hear from you, so send us questions or comments to blabcoats at gmail.com. And if you have any interesting questions or comments, then we'll talk about it on air.